welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 354 as we continue our current series called Reverse Engineering Success. I hope that you guys have been enjoying this series if you've turned into the previous episodes. And if you haven't, be sure to go back and check those out. But the big idea with this series is to talk with a guest about a very specific hunt that they had, which was successful, and then look backwards and talk about the decisive moments, the key decisions, maybe the mistakes that they overcame to ultimately achieve that success. We're doing that very thing today with Brian from Hush, who you may know as BMAC. So we talk about a special elk hunt that Brian had in Wyoming, and it's quite the story, as you'll hear about. So I personally took a lot from this conversation and from Brian sharing the lessons that he learned on this hunt, and I know you will as well. If you guys have any questions for us for the podcast, maybe you want to ask a question about a gear, tactic, hunts, plans, etc., look for the link in the show description for SpeakPipe, where it says leave us a message. And you can use whatever device you're using to listen to this podcast to quickly leave us an audio message and ask us a question, and then we will get that on the list to answer on a future Monday Minute episode. Additionally, you can also reach us by email, which is just podcast at exomountgear.com. And finally, just want to say thank you to everybody for tuning in. And I hope that these episodes, especially this time of year, we're in July as this is released. So many of us are so focused and doing a lot of work to plan our upcoming hunts for the fall. And I hope that this podcast is helping you do just that plan for some success. Speaking of it, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Brian. Brian, welcome to the Hunt Back and Podcast. Man, it's long overdue, my friend. Thanks, man. G- glad to be here. It is. Uh, I was thinking back, uh, man, the first time I ever like slid into an exo pack and how that kind of changed the trajectory of the packs that we're using and the relationship we've had with you guys. Um, if I'm not mistaken, we were with the guys from Born and Raised. We were filming Land of the Free, and Trevor had just killed a bull that we had packed out and myself and Casey were not in an exo pack at the time. And I believe we were bitching and complaining about how brutal the pack was. And Trevor and Trent were just giggling and laughing and like, what are you talking about? <laughs> dude, this thing was, this is cake here. Try this on. And we both slid into it and we're just like, what in the world? This is so much freaking better than what we've been doing. Um, and that was kind of like the start of like, wow, we should probably not be running the packs we're currently running and maybe find something that's much more comfortable. Awesome. Yeah. Which land of the free was that? Do you recall? I get them all mixed first up. One. Yeah. With you. yeah. It was the first one back in 2017. Uh, we just finished up a hunt in Idaho and had a badass morning calling Elkin and Trevor shot a bull. Super fun day out in yeah. the woods with those guys. It's been cool to get to know you guys. And to be honest with you, Brian, like I forget what the origin is. Cause I feel like, Oh yeah, it was just like, hush, like there they are. Right. Like, but how did all that come together? I'm sure we could spend an hour on this, but like, what's a quick full yeah. backstory and the origins? For sure. So Casey started the Hush channel back in 2011, which seems like forever ago. And he and his family had spent some time making YouTube videos for a living, like documenting their family, which sounds completely bizarre, but it's a real thing. And I had met him on an elk hunt down in New Mexico. And he was explaining like how, you know, he used to work at a steel mill 
and quit his job to go make YouTube videos. And I'm like, what, dude, how is that even possible? What are you talking about? So he kind of explained a little bit about how he's able to monetize his personal family channel. And they just, he took a risk and tried it out. And he's always grew up with a passion for hunting and fishing and outdoor stuff like all of us. And so he wanted to try to show more of that. And back in 2011, like YouTube was very, very immature in its stage, virtually zero people sharing outdoor stuff. A lot of kind of like the just viral type videos back then. And so he started this channel with the hope of just sharing outdoor related content. And it was kind of a hobby to begin with. And then when I met him in 2012, I was just like, this is a great idea. I didn't know a whole lot about YouTube, but essentially we stayed friends. He had met Eric kind of similarly timelined out just in different capacities. And then when things really kind of like picked up and moved forward, my wife and I, we grew up in Oregon, just outside of Portland. So I spent my whole life there. But in 2014, we relocated for her job to Salt Lake City. Eric happened to live in Salt Lake. Casey's in Pocatello, just two and a half hours away. So we started hanging out and chatting a little bit more, met each other. And one night we we're at dinner and kind of talking about like, man, what could we do to maybe like make this a little bit more than a hobby and kind of had the idea that Eric and Casey could come together. They both had something that each other needed and uh, they agreed like, yeah, we should become business partners and figure this out. And um, kind of my, my piece of the equation, those guys are very heavy focused on like the content front, front of the, you know, front facing type people. And my, my passion and skills have always been kind of behind the scenes with business development and marketing and branding. And so I was trying to help them establish partnership relations, sponsors, you name it, um, turn it into like an actual business at some point and make some money out of it. But, uh, essentially by about 2015, we kind of all came together as like formed an, a company in LLC and, uh, structured an operating agreement and kind of said, let's try this thing. And so I was working full-time at corporate, corporate America selling. And, um, you know, over those years of 2015 through 2018, just moonlighting with hush and trying to like develop a business essentially. So we did started doing like our own branded merchandise and slowly convincing people that, um, you know, YouTube and digital was the way of the future. Cause if you think back then, like outdoor TV was still the biggest thing as was magazines, hunting forums, you know, those were the main primary resources that people kind of consumed hunting content. So YouTube was really new. Most companies in the industry kind of scoffed at the idea and just thought it was kind of silly and ridiculous. Uh, so breaking down the door, um, was, was a challenge. You know, we got turned down a lot by companies that just didn't see the connection there. They were still all in on putting, you know, magazine ads in place and partnering with television shows. And so, uh, just kind of kept grinding, man, and talking to people, networking, finally got a few companies to believe in us and actually invest a little bit of money and product up front. And we just kind of put everything back into the business, paid for Eric to be like the, the single full-time guy and just kind of put our head down and started working. You know, we, we started the business with our why of three pillars, which is to, you know, inspire new hunters and anglers to get out in the field to try to bring awareness on different like hunting access and conservation-based initiatives. And then three was just to give back, you know, be good stewards in our community, in the industry. And at the time we, you know, we had no idea if it would turn into anything. We were just having a good time, enjoying what we were doing, sharing our adventures. 
and so yeah, it's it's uh it's slowly but surely kind of grown its way. And in 2018, I quit my corporate job and went all in. Casey kind of went all in, and so since 2018, the three of us have been doing it full time. Then we've hired uh, two full time guys that are kind of on the creative side. And yeah, it's like, it's a dream to wake up every day and do something that you're passionate about and that you love. Uh, I spent, you know, almost 20 years in corporate America grinding out, you know, doing corporate sales and sales leadership and you name it and certainly learned a lot, but I'm just so thankful and appreciative that I have an opportunity to, to do this now as a career. So that's kind of the story in a nutshell. That's cool. One thing I really admire about you guys is the, the one you mentioned your pillar of giving back. I think you guys do do more than anyone for my kind of casual outside observing of, of doing charities and raising funds for different things. And that's, uh, it's pretty cool. It's pretty unselfish, right? It's pretty easy to be selfish these days and just think about yourself. And I think you guys do a great job, you know, uh, just uh, giving back. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a weird deal because when you do it, you kind of almost feel selfish in a way because it, it does, it's such a fulfilling component, mm-hmm. you know, when you yeah. actually do something positive like that. And, uh, we've been able to leverage like some movie events that we'll generally hold like the day before the hunt expo in Salt Lake city where we'll do a raffle and then pick different charities. We've done everything from like local boys homes to the primary children's hospital huntsman cancer Institute. Uh, we helped a follower, Daniel who had spina bifida uh, do his very first elk hunt in Nevada got his first bull, which is just the, probably the most amazing hunt I've ever been on got him like a, an action track wheelchair so he could get out and be more mobile. And, uh, and then just a lot of local stuff around, you know, our community trying to help each other out. And I think if we do more of that as a group of hunters and outdoorsmen, I mean, we're just going to be in a, in a much better position, right? There years ago, all the hate we used to get was from like the, the anti hunting vegetarian vegan crowd. And I feel like anymore, it's just all unfortunately from the hunting crowd and so, uh, it's unfortunate, but I think hopefully we can just continue to lead by example and stay positive and try to make, you know, an impact in a great way. And if we all could do more of that, I think we'd be in a better place. Yeah. Well said, man. Let's talk hunting. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's dive in on this. <laughs> let's do it. Um, first context. So this was a, a Utah tag, correct? No, this was a Wyoming tag. Oh, this was Wyoming. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So it was a Wyoming tag, um, special draw. So if if you guys are familiar putting in for Wyoming, you've got the regular and the special draw. It was, uh, more than eight points and less than 13 points. So kind of in that frame, uh, so certainly, you know, invested in it for a long time, a unit that I'd been kind of eyeballing for a lot of years with the hopes of maybe someday I'll, I'll be able to sneak in there and, and get a tag. And that's kind of the, the context, um, was, was that, and, you know, obviously you get the successful email in the inbox and man, the wheels just start turning of like, what could this become? And, you know, I think there's a lot of us grow up just on the over the counter or general tags, obviously things have changed a lot, but most uh, of the stuff that we've done personally over the years is not been the limited entry hunts just because we haven't been successful on the points or whatever. And so this was one of those kind of like, man, I hope this is what you would dream it to be type of hunts. Mm-hmm. How did you manage expectations for that with like having a, having a goal or a standard, but then not, you know, obsessing too much and like letting 
letting those expectations, high expectations, years invested, money invested kind of ruin the experience for it. Cause that's something for me that I, I haven't experienced much, as you said, hunt mostly over the counter, but I've talked with so many guys, some of which on this podcast who said like, man, I, you know, I waited forever for this tag. And I honestly, my mindset kind of ruined the experience because I just put way too much pressure on it and stuff like that. I I mean, dude, I couldn't agree with you more that that is a real thing. Um, you know, I just wanted to have fun and I'm, I'm a little more, you know, I'm fortunate in the sense that my schedule is a little more flexible maybe than it would have been if I was working in corporate America. So I, I knew that I could commit to time and that certainly helped. Right. Cause I didn't say like, man, I only have like six days and I got to get it done. It was like, I'm going to invest as much time as I can. It's not close to where I live. So, I mean, there's, there's travel and stuff, but I'm just going to take it one day at a time. Um, I'm going to see what this unit has to offer. I'm going to try to experience as much of the unit as I can just to really take in the whole dynamic of the hunt beyond the hunt, which is, you know, seeing new country, learning new areas. I think that's a key to it is just not getting so zoned in on like, I got to kill this caliber of bull and just trying to enjoy the entire experience of having like this really unique tag in your pocket. So for me, it was like, number one, have, have a good time. Uh, I went with uh, Casey, my business partner and Logan, one of our camera guys, he's been with us forever, both really great friends of mine, super fun to share camp with. I think, I think that helps too. If you're hunting with people, man, bring people that are going to be a positive influence on the hunt and not going to drag you down. Yeah. So that was the initial mindset. Just go out there, have a great time. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on the pre pre hunt side of doing research and networking and scouting on the computer. And then in person, like verifying things that, you know, were either true or untrue about e-scouting. Um, so I was, felt like I was setting myself up for success on the front end of it before opening day even hit, which I also think is super valuable. If you can do a lot of the work up front, once opening day comes, man, you've got a really pretty dialed plan detailed out. And then you just need to go kind of follow it. Right. And, and adjust and be nimble depending on how the hunt kind of lays out. Let's zoom in on that idea of validating your, your e-scouting. Cause you did get a chance to take a summer scouting trip. People talk from a very high level, you know, about, Oh, you need to e-scout. Oh, you need to get boots on the ground and guys will dive into one or the other and how they e-scout and how they get boots on the ground and scout. I don't know that I've heard as much talked about this idea of e-scouting, validating that with boots on the ground, and then specifically pulling on the lessons that you've learned from having the opportunity to do both. So I guess in what ways did your, did your boots on the ground time validate your e-scouting? And in what ways did you kind of change the approach, maybe change areas you had e-scouted, but realized we're going to be different once you did get boots on the ground? Yeah. I mean... E-scouting is amazing, no doubt, but I'll tell you, validation is, is so important because there's, there's so many things that are going to turn up that are going to be, you're going to prove yourself correct in your assumption, or you're going to be proved incorrect. Um, a few things to consider that, that came up in this one was, you know, like there was certain things on the map showing that like a particular road might pass through this area and on the map, everything shows it's completely good to go and it's open. 
which would have theoretically cut like travel time down significantly to get from like point A to point B on different areas of the unit travel, you know, through a road on a truck. But by getting boots on the ground, it was validated that that was actually not a passable road at all, even though the map showed it. And so had we just assumed, you know, going into the fall that that was all good, we would have wasted a pile of time trying to think like we could cross this spot when in reality you had to drop and do a huge loop around it. So that was certainly one. Um, I think, you know, you can look at certain terrain topography, um, finding different areas on the map that you might assume would be good feeding grounds, bedding grounds, things of that nature. But there's no way to really know until you get in there and go look around, right? Are you, are you able to find like old rubs, old sign from like previous September's where it appears there's, there's elk there. Uh, we did set a few trail cameras in a few different areas too, just to kind of see like, man, what would happen in Wyoming? You, you're not allowed to like use like salt or mineral or anything. So we were just picking like common kind of trails that appeared to have good traffic on them and a literally complete shot in the dark, but we put them up anyways. And later we would, you know, would be proved to found some good areas, but I can't, you know, stress enough the importance of going there and finding even little things of like, man, where can we park and use, you know, this area as like a landing spot to jump off and go baby hunt for three or four nights. Um, access, I mean, you name it. There's just so many variables. I think you can't necessarily learn looking at a computer that you could when you get there and are certainly like, all right, this is, this, this is definitely correct or whoa this was way different than i expected so that 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 trip really helped set up like this the plan going into opening day of like where i want to spend my time and so we went early uh which was like the first of september i believe was the opener with the objective to spend like the first week there um, and then if necessary you know come back later in september in your more traditional kind of like heavy rut time you know parameters but with that like through e-scouting and then boots on the ground, I was able to identify like four different hunt areas that I would want to like consider and explore. And these ranged all over the unit. Uh, and we ended up that first week moving several times and it, it, I wouldn't have felt near as confident that opening week to, to pull up camp and relocate that many times had I not gotten out and like verified everything. And so that, that just helps save time and just be more efficient and getting out in the field and actually hunting when season was live. When you, you said you moved four times, what were you seeing or most likely not seeing that, that wanted you to move? I think, you know, it's common for guys to, you know, they go out to Colorado for their first elk hunt and they don't know what good elk sign looks like or, or good country either. It's like, they stick it out for too long in an area that's just not holding elk. So what were you um, not seeing most likely that, you know, called you to move? That That's exactly what it was. Spot one, you know, looked promising. You could certainly tell there's a potential, there's old sign in there, but we never saw any fresh sign nor any elk on the hoof. And so we were in and out of that spot in a day. It was like, mm. I think we did like an eight mile loop first day and it just was there was a dead zone there. So opposed to like sticking back in there and, you know, um, hoping something was going to turn up, we pulled out 
took down camp. So we were pulling like a little jumping jack trailer. And then the objective was like, have these little kind of base camp setups and then bomb off with the backpacks and go in for a handful of days, explore. And if necessary, come back out, move, do it all over again. So we spent a full day and in, in, uh, evening in spot number one wasn't prosperous. And so we literally packed up and headed to spot number two, which was not close. I mean, it was like an hour and a half drive away, but that was the whole objective is just to cover country. And we're still trying to figure stuff out, right? Like our, we're assuming we have some, some ideas of where these elk are going to be, but there is certainly a difference that, that proved to be true with like where elk are in their summer routine versus you get like August 15th to August 18th when that antler gets, uh, their antlers get stripped of the velvet, their patterns are changing. And so spot number two, then we went to start verifying and checking some of those trail cameras that I had dropped in July. And what we had learned is we certainly found their summer ground. So we had a lot of, a lot of pictures of elk in velvet, but literally August 15th to the 18th, uh, when we had footage of them stripping their velvet and then hard horned, all activity ceased and changed. So we spent time kind of hunting in these areas that they were kind of summering in, but they weren't there currently as of like September 3rd or 4th or whatnot. And so it's like, okay, where are all these bulls now? You know, where's their kind of pre-rut zone? Uh, we weren't seeing a ton of cows either. And it appeared to us just kind of like putting all the pieces together. Maybe we're a little too high in elevation. We need to kind of drop down some. Were there other attributes of this preseason summer area and then where you ended up getting into elk beyond elevation. Can you kind of discuss like whether that's cover, whether it was simply just where cows were, but like kind of set the scene, if you will, or kind of describe the differences of those two areas where elk were versus where they are now. Absolutely. So when we moved to spot number two, it it was uh, more like heavily developed, thicker timber cover, Um, you know, not, ideal glassing country by any means that, you know, like that thick where there's a few pockets and meadows, but predominantly like thicker cover that, you know, you might, you might consider in a lot of places out, out West, you know, hunting elk, but it wasn't like your typical kind of like rolling broken hill, sagebrush pine where you can see and, you know, set up a spotting scope and use that. This was like binos on the shoulders no more than, you know, a few hundred yards of glassing. So we spent three nights back in there doing a big, huge loop. And we definitely saw fresh elk sign. We saw fresh rubs. We got into some bugling bulls, but what we started to to realize as well is mostly immature bulls um, that were still kind of hanging out in there. We never saw like a mature bull on that three day cycle. We saw probably like I don't know, a handful of more immature kind of raghorn, smaller bulls did hear some bugles and what have you, but it just didn't seem like this is where a, the cows are. And then B there was just no like more mature elk. And so after those three days, now, you know, we're four or five days into the trip and still just trying to figure it all out. Like, man, where are, where are the more mature bulls in this unit? And uh, so we kind of started like, trying to figure it out, looking, obviously like exploring the maps. Like I had a million waypoints saved from just the pre-scouting, um, different areas, you know, identified by color, like, okay, we're in the yellow zone. The white zone is over here with all my waypoints and markings. Maybe we need to go try this last spot. 
And so we ended up moving again, which is a pain in the ass, but, you know, because again, I had some time, I was uh, starting to get to kind of a point in my mind where, well, maybe this is just going to be like an extended kind of a scouting trip for a follow-up visit later in the month. And that's okay too, right? Like we're, we're just trying to learn and figure stuff out. So after that three-day bivy, um, you know, we ended up pulling back out and moving to like a final spot that I had, which um, I was excited about. It was like also over Labor Day weekend that first week. So I kind of like didn't want to hit that first spot with the idea that there probably would be more people at it, even though it was like my number one place I wanted to go. And so we waited until like midweek after Labor Day to finally like move to this, uh, this last kind of spot. You mentioned all this talk of moving. You said it was a pain in the ass, but at the same time that often is like a big consideration is how do you be able to stay mobile and be nimble and all that. So like, what are some of the super practical things that you would encourage guys with of just how to execute a hunt like this, knowing you may have to move after whether it's one day or after three days and the decisions that you make that allow you to do that effectively. Yeah. I mean, I think the first step honestly is just going into it ahead of time with, with the, the belief that we're probably going to be moving. I think there's a lot of people to get their head in a place where they're very set on, this is the area I'm going into. And they're not really considering, well, what if there's no elk there at the time you're going in? And so, you know, we talked to a lot of folks over, over the course of a year that'll reach out and ask questions, or maybe they're going on their very first Western hunt or whatnot. And being nimble is something that I really try to like preach as a concept um, so instead of saying, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hike in however many miles, you know, everybody's a little bit different, but whether it's three miles or eight miles, a lot of people will just kind of like, that's where they're going. And if there's no elk there, then, then what? And I, so I think if you can go in ahead of time, knowing and being committed to like, okay, we are going to be mobile if we can't find what we're looking for. To me, that's the first step. So like having a base camp, whether you're in a truck with like a bedroll or you got a little jumping jack trailer, something that's easy and not going to take you four hours to break down camp to me is a great starting point. And just knowing that, okay, I've got a base camp. I'm going to have my bivy set up off my back where I want to go for, you know, three nights to five nights, whatever, again, depending on your, your schedule, a lot of time. Uh, we, we like to prepare like food in advance. So my wife will pre-make a bunch of food. So in the event we're dropping back down to a truck camp, I don't have to deal with like thawing out meat and like cooking something from scratch. It's literally just like heating up food and we're done. Uh, that's super convenient uh, from a time standpoint and just one less thing you have to worry about. And then um, really just like having the plan. Okay. Okay. If my number one spot is a bust, what, what's two through four look like? And where are we headed? And I think that's another thing that if you don't maybe put a little effort and thought into that in advance, you can waste a lot of time in the moment, particularly if you have multiple people in your party with a tag. Oh, I think we've all been there hunting with friends uh, where it's like, well, wh where, where should we go? What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Let's go over here. Well, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking about going over here. It can be kind of a cluster on what you're going to do, where you're going to go. And so just, again, having a plan in place, like knowing this is my number one spot, then we're going to go here. Then we're going to go here. Then we're going to go here. 
And, you know, that should have us covered for the duration of this trip. All of those things I think can be very beneficial in your decision-making and your time management. And also just being confident that like, yeah, this was a bust, but that's all good. We got this, these other three spots to check, which just allows you to, I think, keep that positive mindset uh, versus getting like super bummed out that your first location was just, unfortunately, you know, there was no elk there. Something I don't know I've done well in the past and I've thought more about recently is if you do have four spots, as you said, like you may rank them one to four. And I, I do think it's important to try and prioritize that. So you're not wasting time or like over analyzing stuff when you're out there. At the same time, I've also realized it's worth considering if I have four spots, like what are the unique characteristics of those areas that would maybe yeah. lead me to choose one over the other based on like the conditions or what I'm seeing. Um, so like, you know, I may go into hunt with areas one to four, knowing that three is better than two. If it's like very dry, for example, right. Yeah. Like spot three actually holds more water. There's more likelihood of this if the conditions are like that. So yeah, like rank them, but at the same time, I would say try and like almost categorize them or just almost think through like, what are the strengths or weaknesses of each area? Like what do they provide that's different from each other? So that if you're seeing a, a, a unique circumstance or conditions that kind of leads one to uh, come to the top of the list, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. The, so for us, like the four spot, which was the one that was ranked number one, but because of the timing of, you know, labor day and more traffic, I kind of like wanted to wait until, Theoretically, there would be less traffic midweek. That was number one, mainly because of barrier of entry. It's not a place that, um, you know, some people maybe would have been interested in going simply because the access was more challenging. And so it, it provided some more, um, more opportunities for maybe those of us that were interested in a, a little bit more of a challenge. So um, that certainly was one of the indicators that made it promising and just the, the, the look of the landscape, the pre-scouting showed good, good like sign of like previous rut activity. And so that it was kind of a few of the, the considerations that eventually led us to that fourth and kind of final spot. You mentioned to me before the importance of staying positive and it sounds like, I mean, you've already basically said it like through this time, even if you go into an area and it's a quote, quote, unquote bust, like I don't, in a way it's just like, okay, well, that's a good thing. Right. Like I learned that elk aren't here, <laughs> like almost yeah. take that, like almost turn the negative into a positive in the sense of like, just don't let that rattle your confidence. Um, yep. cause that just seems like such a key thing when guys start getting down and lack the positivity, it's just so easy to talk yourself out of hunting hard or talk yourself into going home early or whatever that looks like. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a process of elimination you know, again, if it's a new unit that you don't have any experience with, so none of us had ever stepped foot in this place, it's a process of elimination. You're just trying to like, you know, solve the mystery, right. Of where, where's going to be the bull that gets me excited in this unit for this hunt. And we were just working our way through like checking boxes. Okay. They're not here. They're not here. They're not here. Uh, this is all good because again, going back to like the, the beginning of the podcast talking about you know, enjoying the whole experience. Like we've just got to like hunt with a tag in our hand, three really different, unique places in this unit. Like that's awesome. In the first week of the season, to me, that's a win. And every step of that first week, we're learning more and more about 
this particular area and how the elk are behaving and what it all looks like. And so to me, it's just like one step closer to solving the puzzle and trying to identify like, what is, what's going to be the moment, you know, when we know like, dude, this is what I was hoping for. And so, yeah, I think, and again, having, having great people can't reiterate that enough. Um, people that are going to pick you up and just keep you lighthearted and having a good time is so critical too. So how does the, uh, how does the story unfold as you guys approach this area you moved to? It's, it's the most, it's the damnedest thing, uh, to be honest. Like we, so we, we had pre-packed our bags for another three to four night bivy hunt. And, um, as we approached like the, the area that we wanted to kind of get to, we had like the packs on and just starting to get going. And Casey happened to like look over on this Ridge and see a bowl and it, it was hotter than hell. It was like 82 degrees, three o'clock in the afternoon. And shortly after he saw the bull, we heard a bugle, which, you know, we're talking, this is like September 6th. So it's early in the season, super warm. What is that guy doing bugling at three o'clock in the heat of the day? Um, so that was like our first indication of, all right, that bull is fired up for some, some reason beyond our knowledge, he's fired up. And so we started kind of studying the map and like figuring out like, okay, how could we get over there? And it was in a position where thankfully like um, there was enough access to slide into this little zone. And we ended up like literally dropping our packs and just like hustling to try to get over in that way. He went into like a thicket and um, we lost sight of him, but by all accounts, he should be somewhere near there. And um, it was kind of a boundary game. And so this bull from all we could tell appeared to be on private, but but not by a lot, certainly within earshot of calling. And so that was kind of the plan. We had full backpacks that were ready for a three day baby hunt that we dropped at the base of the truck and started like working our way over to this area. And so we, we got over there and, and tried to set up on the bull and no luck. And so, you know, we're talking like four o'clock in the afternoon by this point in time. And then like, like happens a lot in the, in the fall, um, a big thunderstorm started to roll in. So, you know, the wind's picking up. So we're like, well, he probably just can't hear us cause it's starting to get windy. And over the next hour, we proceeded to just get absolutely freaking pounded with thunder, lightning, hail, you know, you just your typical mountain thunderstorm, um, and because we left everything back in the truck, we just had like, you know, we were dressed for 82 degrees. So we had no <laughs> kind of like rain gear, coats, nothing. And uh, just soaking wet under a bunch of trees, just trying to like stay dry. But it thankfully it passed through after about an hour, hour and a half. And now we're getting into like pretty prime time conditions, you know, getting that kind of like six o'clock time frame. And, uh, so we're like, well, let's, let's try to set it up again. I can't imagine that bull went anywhere. And so Casey dropped back and was calling and Logan and I kind of slid up to this little area and Casey ripped off a bugle. And sure enough, that bull responded right away. And so we were, um, we were just sitting there, you know, Logan's right over my shoulder. I've got an arrow knocked. We're in a great spot. And I mean, dude, it's like, the dumbest thing, but it's exactly what you dream of. Like literally this bull with, um, you know, like the perfect kind of post storm lighting, you know, there's still steam coming off like the sagebrush and the junipers from that transition of 
the cold storm and the new sun that's kind of warming it up. He comes skylining over this hill. And immediately, as soon as I laid eyes on it, I'm like, that is a hundred percent a shooter. Like, whoa, <laughs> that is a stud. And he's just like beautifully skylined and super fired up. Like this bull was incredibly vocal, but not in after he bugled, he didn't do any more bugles, but he was like, like how these like sound like a dog, like whining and grunting and just making these very interesting audible sounds that you don't get to hear that often. Um, and it just coming into Casey on an absolute rope. So he comes in, um, stops at probably like 40 yards and starts like raking a juniper tree. And again, just the lighting, everything's incredible. I'm still not at full draw yet. I let him pass through that. I go to full draw was able to to stop him with a cow call. And I'm assuming the shot was around like 35 yards or so and able to get an arrow in him. And it was just like, I cannot believe that just happened. Like, so it's September 6th, right? Like we, it was so hot that day. We were trying to like figure out where are these dang elk, you know, let's go to this last spot that I think is promising and the dumbest luck of like seeing him as we're getting ready to hike in. And then he comes in on a string in one of the most beautiful settings I've ever seen. Um, Some of the coolest footage we've ever got, to be honest, and was able to get an arrow in him. We're just like completely like at a loss at that point in time. I think there, I mean, what some takeaways there of, you know, always, always just being aware, right? Like, I mean, you're at the trailhead, you're about ready to hike in and, and um, just keeping your eyes open, right? Like if if somebody, I don't know who spotted the animal, but I think maybe said Casey. Casey. like if he hadn't, you know what I mean? You just got to be, uh, what's, uh, Dave, Dave say Mark of like move, think twice as much, move half as slow or something like yeah, that. Right. Yeah. Just always being aware and, and understand that opportunities can, can present themselves. I have a bad habit of, of, um, I'd be at that trailhead and it's like, Oh, well, we got, we got to get in there now. You know, like, let's, let's go put your head down and start hiking and, and just stare at your feet for the first three miles. Cause you in my head, I assumed I'm not going to get into elk until, you know, you get in there, but it's such a good lesson to, you know, just always, always have your eyes open. You never know when opportunity is going to present itself. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I think we all are at fault of doing that. It's like, dude, let's get back. Let's, let's go. What are we doing? Why are we wasting time? And lo and behold, walking past elk (laughs) (laughs) as you're trying to get back in there. So yeah, I mean, Casey's a, he's an exceptional like glasser, like really incredible. His eyes are some of the best that I've ever met frankly and so he's always scanning always scanning and sure enough man he picked that thing up and then we were able to hear him bugle and you know he he was just like super positive like dude let's go kill that bull man he's bugling at three in the afternoon like we can kill that bull yeah so he just had like a great mindset too uh that helped kind of like our whole team just like yeah dude let's do it let's make a run for it and you know (laughs) see what happens um because again that wasn't the plan right the plan was to go hike in and go camp back in there for three or four days. So it was just like another pivot point um, to like, dude, let's gamble it. We might, we may not get him and that's okay. We'll figure that out after that, but what a great opportunity for a bull that was hot. And, you know, we had enough access to get slid over into there. So it was certainly, you know, worth the opportunity, worth getting soaked in the storm, worth everything. And literally one of the coolest moments I've ever had elk hunting. Oh, um, it's, it's easy for us to, you know, I can probably visualize your setup, but describe the setup, um, on, you know, your, 
the storm passes, you know, the elk yeah. is how many yards away? What, you know, sure. how far did you move? Were you side hill, uphill? Sounds like he was over a little ridge. Like, how did you approach that to, to create the opportunity? Yeah. How did Casey call like any specifics on that? Yeah. Yeah. So he, he dropped back probably like 80 yards and he was kind of on the edge of some Aspen trees. Um, and then we proceeded up through the Aspens and kind of were right on like a transitional area where it was like Aspen juniper sage. And I think, you know, setup is, is a critical part of surely, you know, having success when you're calling an elk. And I think getting yourself in a place where you have good shooting lanes, you know, your feet are situated underneath you, you've kicked out any kind of brush or branches uh, and you're on the front side of your backdrop. So I think some, some folks, maybe a little more novice have a tendency, maybe set up behind brush uh, when they're calling. And I think as the shooter, you know, you want to, you want to be on the front front side of that. So you'll have a good back cover. So we had back cover of like juniper trees and then kind of up 45 to our left was a pretty steep sage hill that led up to some of that private land. And the private land was probably like 150 yards away from where we were set up, like the fence boundary. And, you know, Casey was in a position where he had enough volume in his bugle to invoke a response. And, you know, one of the things like hunting with the born and raised guys for a lot of years is, it, you know, everybody wants to sound like the best elk caller, but really volume to me is more prevalent than like pitch. And so, mm -hmm. you know, those guys really preach, you know, blow on this diaphragm read, like your life depends on it. Like get a lot of volume out there because with topography and terrain and conditions, um, those bugles may not get to the, to the elk's ears if you're just kind of given a half-assed attempt, frankly. So Casey was ripping pretty good, uh, on a bugle with kind of, you know, started off with a couple cow mews, then went to a, a, a more pronounced, you know, like locator type call. And because this bull was, was so turned on and fired up, he immediately, you know, responded to that. And before you know it, he, he had breached, you know, this, this ridge up to our left at a 45 and was immediately in eyesight to us. And then Casey was just cow calling, you know, beyond that initial response. Um, and it happened really quick, you know? So the positive thing too, is we moved prior to Casey calling. And so we kind of gave him like the, you know, like the, the signal, like, all right, we're set up, we're good to go. Had we allowed him to call without getting set, we would have been either busted or we would not have been in a position to have a shot. So that was just another thing. Again, it's, you know, pretty common for anybody that's been doing it for a long time, but if you're newer, make sure you're set up and completely dialed in your position to shoot before your partner starts calling. Cause it could happen faster than you think. Yeah, absolutely. Do you always try and keep that caller who's dropped back in sight? Are you using nonverbal or non audio communication or do you, uh, like when you say you let him know you're ready, you're set, is that eye contact and motion or is that like a quick, quiet cow call to him or what does that look like? Yeah, I think it depends on the setup. In this situation, it was a quick, quiet cow call. I couldn't see Casey. Uh, he was just out of visual sight, but he knew that like we usually just like that's our little code, right? Like yeah, cow mew, we're, we're ready to roll. And then he could begin like his sequence of calling. Going back to, you mentioned the bull came in, he did some raking. You decided at that point you weren't at full draw yet. Was that 
he was out of shooting range or you had a, a different, very specific shooting lane in mind. Um, just thinking through like those times when a bull's approaching, you don't necessarily know where he's going to go. You think you may yeah. know where he's going to go deciding when to draw. Like how did that all play out in this uh, shot? Yeah. Well, because this country was a little bit more open, um, I would have been nailed had I drawn any sooner just based on the angle that he was kind of coming towards us as he was, you know, he had no idea. Obviously we were there. He was keyed in on the audible sound of Casey calling. And so there was a couple of junipers that I was waiting for him to pass by. That was still like shooting lane on either side. So if he would have come towards us and angled more to his right, our left, I would have been able to have a shooting lane there and draw back as he passed by a juniper in front of us. As it stood, he went to his left, which would have been our right, and went just on the other side of a couple of junipers that were probably like 20 yards away from us, but enough for me to conceal my draw without getting pegged. And again, that's just another area where um, when it gets down to go time, like I think there's a lot of missed opportunities at that moment of drawing the bow, either – um, doing it too soon where you're going to get caught or you're doing it too late where you're going to get caught or not have a shot. There's like a fine line between when's the appropriate time. So I, you know, in this instance, I had a couple spots. I knew that if the bull passed by, I'd be able to, you know, give, get to full draw without him paying attention. Cool. And then you said you did cow call to stop him as he was moving. I did. So another learning lesson over the years, you know, I like to try to have a, a read in my mouth. I've learned through failure, uh, there was an, another opportunity that I shot a bull that I didn't stop him, ended up hitting him back just from that one big elk stride. It was enough to go from like lungs to liver and which has created like a shittier blood trail and more, you know, stress and anxiety. We were able to recover the bull, but it was a challenge. And so trying to get him stopped, I think is always great. Um, and I think, you know, another thing that I just keep trying to like reiterate to myself and learning is to slow down, uh, had a tendency to probably try to rush through a shot. So I think we can all visualize it and, or have been there where you stop them with a cow mew. And they, I mean, you know, they're in the moment, they have no idea what's going on. And usually there's a process that their brain is, you know, trying to calculate a, I don't see a cow elk B what's going on. And it's probably like a good five to 10 seconds before they would even move again or do anything or bust or whatever. If you got the wind in your face, the conditions are right. You're concealed properly. They're likely not going to just move quickly after that cow call and you've got them stopped. They're trying to process and identify what is going on. And so like I've had a tendency in, in my years of hunting to try to, you know, cow call. And then you end up rushing the shot because in your mind, you're like, man, this thing's going to move too quick. So I'm just trying to like slow down in the moment and realize like that bull is going to be there for plenty of time you know, to execute a good shot. And so just, you know, another thing through failure of trying to get better uh, in the moment, in the heat. And so uh, was able to get a shot on him. It actually ended up being just a touch back. It looked like the arrow uh, didn't have a full pass through. It hit on the opposite side. And so I can see like my knock, my fletching sticking out. And it, by all accounts, I'm like, dude, that, that bull is dead. But Elker exceptionally strong animals. They've got an incredible will to live. And so, uh, we thankfully like it's kind of opened open train where we keep eyes on him. 
certainly went further than we thought. And then he ended up hopping uh, a fence and jumping onto some private and going into this juniper thicket. And we just watched him in that thicket until dark. Um, he was obviously, you know, critically ill, uh, but it, it added another layer of, of variables. Cause now I have a bull that is not on public land anymore. It's on private land. And, you know, well, what do you do now? <laughs> so, yeah. uh, another, another kind of like tip that I was able to, to, that I feel good about is prior to during that summer scouting trip, I was able to connect with a few of the, um, more predominant land ownership areas in the, in the, in the vicinity in the event, a, I mean, asking like, Hey, do you guys allow any kind of trespass fees? Is there any, you know, corner hopping that you'd support for some of this landlocked stuff, trying to just develop like a small amount of rapport. Uh, and through that process was able to get a couple numbers of some folks who owned a few of these property pieces and just having like communication with them in the summer months really paid dividends for this moment because I ended up being able to send out an inreach message to one of the, the folks that, that owned the property and just said, Hey, I've got a bull that I shot. Um, here's kind of roughly where we are. I'm pretty sure he's on your property by what we can tell um, less than hundred yards in, but nonetheless on your land, would you, you know, are you okay if I can go in there and retrieve him? And so through that process of like using the Garmin in reach, sending messages back and forth, we got the written approval to go in and get him. And so because of the situation and, you know, the delay of like the landowner, uh, we decided to wait overnight and retrieve him at first light. And, uh, always a stressful time as a hunter, you know, waiting, mm -hmm. rethinking everything, replaying it in your head. Uh, but in my opinion, it was absolutely the right decision. So we got in there right at the crack of first light and the bull was exactly where we last saw him and just a super, uh, you know, feeling of relief and gratitude and excitement kind of all wrapped into one. Yeah. That's key, man. It worked out great that you had already built that little bit of rapport and know who to contact in this situation. It was huge. Yeah. I mean, um, so, so grateful that I took the time to try to like figure that out in the summer. And certainly, you know, he was appreciative that we had asked and kind of followed the right protocol to, to go get that without creating any kind of issues with obviously crossing on to trespassing or whatever. So it was, it's the right way to do it, you know, and you got to just, I feel I'm a believer that if you do it the right way, like typically good things are going to happen. And he was really a nice person and obviously shared like the photos with them and just kept in contact, let them know, you know, we're out of there and the bull has been retrieved and he was just appreciative with the communication too. It's wild that you had planned on going in for three or four days and miles deep, not necessarily on planning on hunting a boundary, um, but that it still played out this way. And you had, cause it would just be easy to be like, okay, we're going to go in this area and yeah, like where we're parking is near this private, but you know, that's whatever, like no issue. Cause we're hiking in. Um, if you hadn't done that groundwork, just assuming you were going to be miles deep, uh, as I think probably what most guys would have done. Yeah, it was the, the whole thing was wild too. After I shot, you know, I mean, hyper focused on like keeping eyes on them and stuff. But as we kind of got closer to like that last, you know, last light, and I mean, dude, elk started pouring out, cows mewing, bulls bugling, a, a bigger herd bull 
and the bull I killed was a stud. He, this bigger bull comes out, he's ripping. So we just kind of hit it right. Like there was, there was a cow or cows in estrus early, right? September 6th, it was hot, but they were fired up. Like they were in the moment. Uh, and this bull I killed was a satellite bull that was right on the outskirts of this herd. And, you know, that those dynamics kind of led to the opportunity of him coming in like he did and just full commit, you know, making these weird audible noises being fired up. So kind of goes to show you, like, you just never know what to expect when you're out elk hunting in September. We've killed a pile of bulls over the years, like before the 10th of September. And I think sometimes maybe, you know, everybody knows like later in the month from like 15th or 18th on to the 30th or 31st, depending on where you're hunting can be pretty prime time, um, you know, rut activity, which is a blast to hunt, but man, anymore, sometimes I feel like the earlier dates are might maybe easier to kill a bigger bull, um, just because of the dynamics of the the herd. And they're just kind of still formulating like into so smaller subgroups. And you might just have a, a little bit better opportunity of shooting a mature bull. If you find those right moments, you know, where they're fired up or there's a cow in estrus or whatever the case might be. Yeah, I completely agree. You're in a good spot. If the satellite bulls look like the bully killed Brian. <laughs> uh yeah right <laughs> yeah i didn't even <laughs> without giving away the, the the unit how do you you know how do you pick a unit any idea to reference somebody tell you about this area is it just a spot you researched up you know the eight years prior or 10 years prior how many points you had yeah yeah a little bit of everything you know i'm yeah. a i'm a i'm a big fan of networking and research um so you know there's a lot of tools out there yep the you know, even like diving into the old hunting forms and like researching archived posts of different units, you can, it's, you know, you know, it's a weird deal because it's sad that so many people would share such amount of information on a public forum, but mm -hmm. it's the reality of like the early two thousands of hunting, you know, like hunting forms. Uh, so many people shared a lot of information and Intel and that stuff is still out there to be had and found. It definitely takes time and effort and research, but it's there. And you've got, you know, different resources like Go Hunt or Hunt and Fool or whatever that whatever is your resource place. Um, there's a lot of information to be had there. Networking and talking to people that may have familiarity, uh, reaching out to the biologist. It's it's a silly thing that everybody always says, but there's valuable information to be had if you do it. Um, on the scouting trips, you know, talking to people that are locally based in the area. I think all of those things are a culmination of helping you kind of identify, you know, where to start. And I, I kind of visualize it as like a funnel. And so at the top of the funnel, when you're thinking about an area or a state to apply for, you know, you, you've got the wide por portion of the funnel and you might have a couple units in there initially. And as you're getting closer to applying, then you might start kind of winding the, like the funnel starts getting narrow, which means like there's, there's fewer units. And then maybe you're applying, depending on the state, you know, you get options, first choice, second choice, whatever that might be, you're just kind of narrowing down the funnel. And then eventually when you, you get the tag, like you're starting to get in the narrowest part of the funnel. And then at that point in time is when I kind of dive in real, real heavy on, okay, now I have this tag secured. Now we really dive into the research and the networking and calling the biologists and just trying to learn as much as you possibly can which then leads into the e-scouting, which then leads into verification and on, on the ground, if you have the ability to, which then leads into like your plans, you know, one through four, 
which then eventually, you know, gets you into the hunt. I like that approach. Yeah. Obviously we'll, we'll grab a link Brian to share in the show description. So guys can see all this footage, but do you happen to recall any title or episode name or anything like that for guys who are uh, just wanting to hear it and get right to it hit Google? Gosh, I'd have to, I can pull it up. Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but yeah. And well, like I said, we'll add that link. So guys should be able to find it easily, but I'm personally going to want to go revisit this footage after hearing you describe the scene. Yeah, no doubt. It's worthy, man. It's, it's some of the coolest elk footage that, that we've gotten over the years. And Logan did a fantastic job uh, under a stressful environment, you know, of making it happen. And um, just uh, one of those, one of those moments, it's just kind of burning your brain for the rest of your life. You know, it's like, that's what you dream of on, you know, limited entry elk hunt that you've put a lot of years into applying for. And, you know, sometimes they don't go that way, but this one, kind of hit all the boxes I was looking for to, to really, you know, have an exciting hunt. Um, if you want to watch the whole thing, it's uh BSY, which is best season yet opening day, Wyoming archery elk season two, episode 21 is where it kicks off. And okay. then the incredible footage in the shot are uh, big Wyoming bull elk charging into our calls season two, episode 25. And then the following recovery video would be episode 26. Awesome. Well, we'll leave those links in the show description. And uh, before you let you go, Brian, any, obviously YouTube is a great place for Hush, but the website, any of the other uh, resources and places to check you guys out you want to share? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our website is www.gethushin.com. You can find us on Instagram at gethushin. We've got uh, the YouTube channels, Hushin, and uh, even for the younger folks doing doing the TikTok stuff, all, all, all the socials, do a little all bit of everything, socials. depending on what your uh, cup of tea is. Well, that's a great way to cap an awesome story. Don't forget, there are links in the show description if you want to check out the episodes that kind of document this hunt. And if you do that and you hit YouTube for those videos, be sure to hit subscribe on the Hush YouTube channel as well. Once again, thanks for tuning into this series. If you haven't yet, hit the subscribe or follow button in whatever podcast app that you're using so that you receive future episodes automatically. And don't forget, you can ask us a question for a future episode by looking for the link in the show description that says leave a message or just by sending an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. We'll talk to you soon.